0: Before we begin the podcast, I have a very important announcement. Today, and really the whole week, our organization, Torch, is running our annual fundraiser. The website for the fundraiser is givetorch.org. As you know, our organization, Torch, does amazing things. We have the best rabbis on the planet. Of course, I am not biased when I make that assessment. We have the best Torah podcasts on the planet. And again, I'm not biased about that but we have a lot of expenses. We're a nonprofit. There is no steady flow of income. And the only way that we could pay our bills, and we could pay the rabbis and the rabbitsons and pay the rent for the amazing Torch Center and to pay for all the amazing things we need to do here at Torch, the only way we do that is via the generosity of our friends and supporters. We have to fundraise. Now, some organizations like to fundraise all the time. Every time you provide services... You provide value, you ask for some support. After all, you're a nonprofit. But a torch, we have a different philosophy. The whole year long, we provide Torah, we provide Jewish wisdom and insight, all for free. The Torch Center is all for free, the podcasts are all free. And then once a year, we do a week of fundraising, we do a blitz of fundraising at givetorch.org. And we raise in one week, please God, the bulk of our annual operating expenses. And that week is right now. And after all, you are listening to our podcast. You enjoy our work. You appreciate what we do. You find our offerings to be interesting and educational and valuable and compelling. So today, I hereby ask for your support. Please give us your support to keep the flame of Torch lit for 2022. I'm asking you for your friendship. I'm asking you for your generosity. I am asking you, please go visit right now, givetorch.org. There is a link in the description of this podcast. Visit the website givetorch.org and make a donation to Torch. This is a matching fundraiser which means that every donation at givetorch.org will be tripled by an incredible group of matchers. So please give what you can give. Support the annual fundraiser. Amplify your donation. It's going to be tripled. And help make this campaign a success. If everyone listening right now stops what they're doing and visits givetorch.org and gives what they can give, this campaign will be a success and the great work of Torch will continue. The flame of Torch will continue. It will shine brightly for another year. Without your support, I certainly wouldn't be able to do the podcasts. Torch wouldn't be able to be functional. We'd have to close and I'd, I don't know what I would do. I would maybe sell mortgages or cabinets, work in healthcare. Become a lawyer. I'd have to find a new job. But thanks to you, thanks to the generosity of the supporters of our organization, Torch, Torch is able to teach and spread Torah in never before seen scales just via the podcasts. This year, this past year in 2021, we eclipsed more than a half a million downloads and we were perennially listed amongst the top podcasts in Judaism. And I want to stress, this amazing accomplishment, it's not mine, it's not ours, the great team here at Torch. This is the handiwork of all of you who supported our organization, us together, accomplished these amazing accomplishments over this past year here at Torch. We don't believe that we have any donors. Even though you may go to givetorch.org and make a donation and you'll get an email that says, thank you for your donation. We don't look at donors as donors. We view them as partners. Whatever merit we get from the unprecedented amount of Torah and Jewish heritage and Jewish history that we spread here at Torch, whatever merit we get, that's divided between us, the amazing team at Torch, and the partners who support our work. You have my pledge. If you invest in us, if you invest in our team here at Torch, if you become a partner at givetorch.org, I commit myself, please God, with help of the Almighty, to work tirelessly over the upcoming year on behalf of you, my partner. I commit to give 110% to advance the goals of connecting Jews and Judaism over this upcoming year if you're my partner. And I'll tell you that this past year it was of course a crazy year as every year seems to be but the light of torch and the flame of torch was burning brightly the entire year. Thank God The efforts of Torch bore fruit. We succeeded in doing incredible things this year. We spread Torah in ways never seen before. In fact, we had an internal goal here at Torch to try to have a million touches of Torah, which means someone who comes to our class, someone who comes to the Torch Center, someone who meets with one of the rabbis, someone who downloads one of the podcasts. We had over a million touches of Torah this past year. And we hope, of course, every year to grow that number we need your help. So please click the pause button, pause the podcast, visit givetorch.org. You can find the link in the description and give what you can give to support Torch in 2022 to support the podcast. This is an online fundraiser. It's a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be tripled. And there's a link in the description and I'm asking you please to pause the podcast And visit givetorch.org and support Torch and support the amazing podcasts that we produce. Now, I know from previous years that when I make this appeal, the one annual appeal to go to givetorch.org, some of y'all will say, you know what? Rabbi, you convinced me. I'm going to give in. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to go to givetorch.org right now and give what I can give. And all the people who do that... You should be blessed with unlimited blessing. You should be showered with tremendous blessing from the Almighty for your generosity. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your partnership. But many of y'all will say, you know what? Ah, eh, Let me click skip. Skip 30 seconds. Skip, skip, skip. Let's get rid of this appeal. Get it over with. Some of you are just not convinced. So every year I try to persuade even the skeptics That supporting Torch at GiveTorch.org is a worthy cause, one of the worthiest charities for you to invest in. Now, last year I made a big mistake. Last year I tried to persuade you by doing something really foolish and really reckless. Last year I decided to give out my cell phone number, 713-301-3611, to the whole world. Whoever listens to this podcast will know my number. What a terrible mistake I did last year. Why would anyone share their cell phone number and tell the world that it's 713-301-3611? Who knows who may call him? Who may text him at 713-301-3611? That's what I did last year, and this year I'm not making that same mistake. This year I'm not going to be giving out my cell phone number. This year I'm going to try to speak to your heart and to your logic. So If you've never given, and you say, you know what, yeah, they do some great work. Yeah, I enjoy the podcast. You know what? The Torch Center sounds kind of swell, but you've never pulled the trigger to become partner. Now is the time for you to invest your charity dollars, your charity dinars, your charity pound sterling in Torch. And here's my argument. You're giving Siddhartha, you're giving charity anyhow. You're supporting worthy causes anyhow. Why not allocate some of your support, some of your charity dollars, some of your charity funds, some of your generosity to Torch to support the amazing work that we do here? I think the Torch is maybe one of the worthiest causes there is. After all, we're trying to connect Jews and Judaism. Is there a greater mission than that? But also, we offer The best bang for your buck. We have a shoestring operation here. The rabbis and rabbis are working round the clock to connect Jews and Judaism. And we do only one fundraiser a year. And today is that day. And we need your help. So please visit givetorch.org. You give and you keep the flame of torch lit. Whoever supports us, whoever visits the website givetorch.org. The link is in the description. Is a partner with us in our work. If everyone who's listening says, I am going to partner with Torch. I'm going to visit givetorch.org. I'm going to make a donation. Every donation will be tripled. We will accomplish our goal. And it's very important for me to have 100% participation. I want to get everyone on board. Give what you can give. If you've given the past, give generously again in 2022. Partner with us partner with Torch, support us, support the Parsha Podcast, support the Jewish History Podcast, support the Torah 101 Podcast, support this Jewish Life Podcast, support the Miza Podcast, support the Ethics Podcast, support all the fantastic work of Torch. I know it's hard. I know it's a schlep, but stop the podcast. Visit GiveTorch.org. You won't regret it. And forgive me for pestering you. If I have your number, I will probably try to call you this week. Be nice to me, please. Even if I'm interrupting you, please forgive me. We do this only once a year. Support us. Support the amazing work. GiveTorch.org. Thank you so much for an amazing year of Torch Podcasts. I am eternally grateful to you for your support. Thank you for listening. Please, God, the campaign will be a smashing success. And Torch will have another fabulous year. And we're going to have this tough conversation, this business meeting, again next year. But right now, I need you to visit givetorch.org and give what you can give. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. And now, to the podcast. Today's subject is a bit scary, a bit spooky, and it's perhaps not for the faint of heart. Because today we're going to be discussing what happens after you die. And death is a bit scary. It's a bit terrifying. And it's a subject that we have to approach gingerly. In our previous sessions, we talked about the general concept of reward and punishment. And we spoke about some of the unique defining characteristics of divine punishment and how divine punishment differs from human Reward and punishment and the systems of God are different. And we spoke about how this subject in this 11th principle is a really big one and it covers all kinds of different venues and arenas of reward and punishment. And it's such a big subject, such a sprawling subject. It's a little bit difficult to unpack. And therefore, I thought it was a good idea to try to kind of look at the big picture and to try to attempt to construct an eschatological timeline of what happens after you die. Now, this subject is vast. I always say that, you know, this world we think of as life and what comes afterwards, well, that's the afterlife. That's the after party. According to Jewish philosophy, our life here is the aberration. This is the anomaly. This is the unusual idea that a soul and body can be bound together. This is the unusual time. Life comes before life and life comes after life. And then we have this interim period where there's this unusual bond, an unusual marriage of body and soul. And then we have free will and that kind of affects the soul and the body after they are separated. So it's a vast subject. And there are a lot of sources, but the sources are not so well organized. The sources are somewhat scattered, and the sources are very esoteric. And there is a fair amount of disagreement about some of even the basic facts of the subject. So I figured just to kind of, before we get into the particulars and the nature of Gehenna and the nature of reincarnation and what's all that about and – what actually happens in paradise and the handover from paradise to resurrection and the world of the souls, all these subjects that are vast and huge and complicated and terrifying and intriguing. I figured let's try to go through the storyline of, of a human. We, we are here. We are familiar with the idea, the notion of a body and a soul being bound together. In fact, that's our primary interface with the world. We have a body, we have a soul, and we see the physical world. And we are all, of course, aware of the fact that life here is not permanent. There has yet to be someone who has outpaced the mm-hmm. angel of death. And therefore, let's look at what happens to us and to our friends and to all the humans based upon the Torah sources what happens to them after they die, and specifically focusing on the reward and punishment aspect of the post-mortem life that we have. Now, I want to stress that this is not going to be a comprehensive treatment of the subject, and I intend to elaborate more and add to the subject as we proceed, but nevertheless, it will definitely plunge us into this very intriguing and terrifying subject. Now, where do we know what we're about to talk about? So, of course, this is not based upon firsthand accounts. No one came back and at least gave us a comprehensive version of this story, even though we do have, even in the Talmud, we have descriptions of near-death experiences and sages coming back and telling us what they saw, what they experienced, and framing for us the perspectives that exist in the next world. But nevertheless, we're going to focus on the Torah sources, what the Talmud says, what our sages tell us. So let us begin. Now, the first question I want to ponder is maybe a question that you have, and that is, why is this important? After all, we're alive here today. And what happens after we die? Well, that's a different universe. That's a different world. Maybe we should focus on our responsibility of what to do when we're alive. Why ruminate upon the day after, after we pass? So that's a good question, and I think one that we have to address from the get-go, and I want to share a few answers. So first of all, the easy answer is, well, that's our subject, We're studying the 13 principles of faith, and we're up to principle number 11, and it's talking about reward and punishment. And we already talked about in the previous episodes how the primary venue of reward and punishment is not in this world, in our current constitution as body and soul bound together. And therefore, we, if we want to do this subject justice, we have to explore what is the nature of reward and punishment after Death, A. B, I also think that this subject, while terrifying, is something which is also fascinating. So sheer curiosity, don't you want to know what our sages say about this? Maybe that is a second reason why it is important to explore. Furthermore, I think there's a great benefit of just thinking and ruminating about a different world. Life over here, we believe, is out of the ordinary. Our primary existence is that of a soul. In fact, it's interesting that the science tells us that our body is constantly recreating itself. We're constantly shedding old and dead cells and creating new ones to the tune of like millions of them a day. So we think of ourselves as a a body, but... The body that we have today is physiologically different than the one we had five minutes ago and yesterday and when we were kids. And it's also noteworthy that the one cells or the one set of cells that we have that don't change or at least not that much or don't get swapped out, that's our, that's our brain cells. And that's why our memories stick. And it's kind of like an, an analogy to this idea. We have a spiritual component, and that is really us, and that is what sticks, and that is the consistent part of our existence. From a child to an adult to an old person. Everything else is just temporary. We're just cycling through them. We're just using our body host to house our soul. But again, the eight the evil inclination, that force is designed to try to get us to think of ourselves as a body, as a result, to think about just the idea of what happens to the soul and to the body, for that matter. After we die, that is a very helpful reframe to kind of orient our perspective with that of the Torah. Our saints tell us that it is a very good idea to remember the day of death Of course, the verse in Ecclesiastes tells us it's better for you to go to a funeral, to a house of mourning and bereavement, than to go to a house of celebration. Celebration is great, but it doesn't get you thinking as much as going to a funeral and witnessing the temporality of life as a body. That is a transformative experience. It's better to spend your time thinking about that, than thinking about the joy and the jubilation of life here. When we focus on just the idea that we're going to die, it helps put our life in perspective. And it's a very powerful tool for us to live our life to the max and to the best possible way. When you realize that all of us will eventually swallow the perhaps bitter pill of death, we can construct our lives in the best possible fashion. But as I mentioned earlier, this subject is not for the faint of heart. If you want to opt out, now's your chance. It's important to begin the subject by talking about the big picture. The Almighty created the world, we're told in all the sources, to give and to benefit others. When there was no other creations, God had no one to give to. God wanted to give. He created the existence to be a receptacle, a vessel of God's goodness and benevolence. But God wanted to give in a perfect fashion, and therefore he created a human who can, via their free will, choose good, and thereby earn good and earn perfect goodness. That is a truncated version of what our sages tell us about the reason why God created the world. When we look at what happens after you die, it's important to remember that everything that happens, the overarching objective of all the terrifying things we're going to read about and learn about, the overall objective is for the benefit of man, of mankind, and to best prime and position the person to be worthy of great reward and divine goodness. Now, the primary benefit, the primary venue of reward is a mode of existence that we call olamaba, the world to come. Now, when is olamaba? And where is Olam Abba? And how does it fit into the paradigm of what happens after you die in the world of the souls and the Gehenna and the paradise and the resurrection? That is a very complicated question that, please God, we will still get to. But we're going to approach the subject gently and slowly and methodically. And please God, eventually we'll get to all those questions. But it's important to remember that what happens after you die are all these steps to try to best position you to be able to be worthy, to be able to be meritorious of ending up in the ultimate reward in Olam Everything that happens in the interim from when you die and you're judged in the various different ways and you end up in one of the various different locations or experiences Detailed below, it's there to position you to be a good candidate for Olam In that framework, let's discuss the question, what actually happens after you die? And of course, the best place to start is not with what happens after you die, but with what happens before you die. And what happens during death? What happens when you die? So said, just tell us in the book of Shabbos on page 55, the following idea. Death can only be the result of sin. Alma um, Ravami, Rav said, ain't misa below hate. There is no death absent sin says Rashi, and a person sin, that is what causes them death. Interesting. We think of death as old age, heart disease, cancer, COVID, whatever it is, God forbid. The Talmud tells us, well, actually, there is a spiritual aspect of this. If a person is completely free of any sin, they won't die. Interesting. Says the Talmud, wait a minute, what about Moshe and Aaron? The two greatest people we've ever had. They died. Where was their sin? Says the Talmud, Moshe and Aaron also sinned. In the episode of the striking of the rock in the book of Numbers, it says that God tells Moshe and Aaron, you don't believe in, in me. Yan Lohim bi." And that's the reason why you're both going to aspire on this side of the Jordan. So even Moshe and Aaron, says the Talmud, they too sinned. And then the Talmud adds something fascinating. There are actually four flawless people who never sinned. And they are Benjamin, son of Jacob, Amram, father of Moshe, Jesse, Yeshai, the father of David, and of the son of David. So how did they die? If there are four people on record, the flawless four, who never sinned, how could he tell me that death is only the result of sin when we have four people that never sinned? Says the Talmud, four people died thanks to the council of, of the serpent. The serpent gave bad advice to Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit. And unfortunately or fortunately, depends on your perspective, Adam and Eve, in fact, capitulated by doing that. They condemned all of humanity to die. Meaning, and this is, of course, a very advanced idea. Adam and Eve, by sinning, they made sin, so to speak, endemic or ever present within humanity. And therefore, someone could die either result of their own sin, but if they have no sins of their own, then they die of sin, so to speak, that relate to Adam, thanks to the counsel of the serpent. So there's a few amazing ideas here that we have to draw out. Just tangentially. First of all, there's an amazing concept of free will. We think of, you know, humans. We have such bad tendencies and everyone makes mistakes. But we believe in a concept called free will. We don't believe that sin is a fait accompli. It's possible, though extraordinarily rare, it's possible to never sin. And we have four people on record that ever sinned which is, again, a life-changing idea. This is not all set in stone. Corruption and wickedness and violation of the will of God is not set in stone. There are four people, again, out of hundreds or a hundred and something billion people. It's a very small percentage. It's a tiny percentage, but we do have four people on record that never sinned. What an interesting idea. Moreover, I think another takeaway of this Talmud is that if someone does sin and they repent from their sin or from their mistake, maybe is a better word to say, then they too can be included in the flawless four. How do I say that? How do I know that? Because the Talmud tells us that Amram, the father of Moshe, did make a terrible and grievous blunder. The Talmud says that when Pharaoh made the decree that all male boys are thrown into the water. In Exodus chapter 1, Amram divorced his wife, Yocheved. And everyone saw Amram, the greatest person of the generation, do that. And they said, I'm going to do the same thing myself. So everyone else divorced their wives. And then a six-year-old girl changed the course of all of Jewish history. And that is Miriam. Miriam is the six-year-old daughter of Amram. And she tells her father, you are worse than Pharaoh. You think Pharaoh's a terrible guy? You're worse. Why? Because Pharaoh only decreed on the males. And by separating husbands and wives across the nation, you're decreeing against males and females. Pharaoh wants to destroy them in this world. You by preventing people from being born, are destroying them in this world and in the next world. And Pharaoh, we don't know if his decree is going to be fulfilled, but you, you're a righteous person; your decree will be fulfilled. So Amram, of course, corrected. He remarried his wife, and everyone else remarried their wives. It seems like Miriam had a good point. She told her father that you did something that's worth, worse than Pharaoh. Amram was not mistake free, but he fixed it. He repented. He course corrected. He wasn't mistakeless, but he was still sinless. A mistake that is fixed is not a sin, evidently from this Talmud. Now you ask the question what about Moshe and Aaron? Moshe and Aaron, they certainly repented from hitting the rock. How come they're not included in the flawless four? The answer to that is that there are certain kinds of misdeeds that can only be fixed after someone's lifetime has concluded. The Talmud tells us that something that relates to Chil Hashem, desecration of God's name, that can only be fixed with a person's death. And because Moshe and Aaron, their mistake, again, on their level, of course, but their mistake had something to do with not presenting God in the proper light. Therefore, there was no way for them to completely cleanse themselves of that transgression, and they died not due to the counsel of the serpent, but due to their own misdeeds. But this is the principle I want to pull out of this idea, that death is a result of sin, with the exception of the flawless four. Now, on a more granular level, there is an angel called the angel of death, the Malach HaMaves, that extracts the soul from a person and kills them. And the Talmud in the book of Bava Basra, page 16a, tells us, that this angel of death is an outgrowth of two other angels. Namely, the Yetzirah and the Satan. Who Satan? Who Yetzirah? Who Malachamavas? This is all the same thing. There are three names to this force. The Yetzirah tries to get a person to sin. The Satan tries to present the arguments for a person's guilt before God. And the angel of death extracts the soul This is the executioner, judge, jury, and executioner that is the angel of death. So this is the same idea. The power that the angel of death has to kill a person, that all stems from the success of the Yitzhara in getting a person to sin. And on an even more granular level, the Talmud tells us that the Yitzhara has seven names. This is the Talmud book of Sukkah, page 52a. There are seven names to the Yetzirah, meaning that there are seven different aspects or components to this force. And those seven names are Ra, evil, Arl, foreskin, Tame, impure, Sone, a hater, Mirshal, a stumbling block, Evan, a stone, and Sphoni, an internal one. Our sages, in addition, tell us that these seven different names correspond to seven different categories of sin, which is, of course, a concept plagiarized poorly by the Christians. There are seven general categories of sin, and they are envy, lust, arrogance, stinginess, licentiousness, hatred of other people, and idleness, wasting time. And our sages tell us in the Talmud that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, which is also the Satan, which is also the angel of death, it's described as a seven-headed serpent. There are seven different forces at play. Oh, and the Talmud also tells us that there are seven names of gehenom This is the Talmud, the book of Erevan 19a. There are seven forces of the Yetzirah trying to get us to do seven different categories of sin and each category of sin has to be cleansed in a different aspect of purgatory. And the Talmud, in the book of Brachos, page 4b, at the very beginning of the Talmud tells us, this is to bring this point home, the angel of death has eight powers. What are the eight powers of the angel of death? The seven powers categories of sin, of the Sahara that a person does on their own. And then there's the eighth power, and that is the counsel of the serpent. How can the angel of death extract a person's soul? In one of eight ways. Either the seven categories of the Sahara, the seven categories of sin, the seven different aspects of purgatory that are cleansed, or that cleanse, that fits, that rectify. That undo these seven forces of sin. Each one of those heads of the serpent is one power of the angel of death. And if a person is not guilty of any of them, they're part of the flawless four, then there's the sin of Adam, the eighth power of the angel of death, which again condemned mankind to die. And that may be the cause of their demise. So our question is, what happens after you die? We started off by saying, what well, happens before you die? Before you die, there has to be some license given to the angel of death. And that license could be one of eight different things. So on a simple level, we said there's no sin. I'm sorry, there's no death without sin with the exception of the flawless four. And then we talked about the next level of this idea that the eights around the angel of death are two aspects of one entity. The angel of death only has power when someone sins. And finally, we have the Yitzra has seven names For the seven categories of sin. And the seven names of Gehenim correspond to those seven categories of sin. But the angel of death has eight powers. The seven sins induced by the eight and one from Adam. That is the judgment. And these are the grounds for a person to be taken away. That's before death. During death, we find the following interesting teaching in the Talmud that connects the Yetzirah with the angel of death. The Yetzirah is not necessarily viewed by us as an enemy. In fact, we actually adopt the agenda of the Yetzirah in our lifetime. The Yetzirah says, oh, pursue this and pursue that. We think we want it. We view the Yetzirah as our friend. He's helping us fulfill our desire for pleasure in this world. He's helping us pursue our goals. At the moment of death, the Yetzirah changes from the Yetzirah aspect to the angel of death aspects, freaks us all out, and we realize that we've been duped and deceived throughout our lifetime, and we get a tremendous pain of pain and regret because we dedicated ourselves to the agenda of our enemy. In the words of our sages, the Yitzhak changes his garments from being an ally, the Yitzhak, into being an assassin, the angel of death. It turns into the angel of death. And it kills us. Now, how does it kill us? Again, we actually have a description in the Talmud in the book of Avodah Zarah on page 20b. It tells us that the angel of death is composed of just eyeballs. How many eyeballs? <laughs> Why is it full of eyeballs? So I say just tell us that there are 365 transgressions in the Torah. And of course, if God says don't do something, we should all listen. We should all obey unquestioningly. Comes along the Yetzirah and in every one of these aspects is able to show us with this eye a different reason. Oh, it's not a problem. Oh, it's not really a violation. Oh, it's okay. Oh, the Almighty understands. This force is comprised of 365 different eyeballs. Now, during our lifetime, we think of it as a friend, but at the moment of death, we see what it really is, and of course, it terrifies us completely. At the moment of a person's death, This angel, says the Talmud, stands above his head, unsheaths a sword. On the tip of the sword, there is a drop of poison. And when the patient sees the angel of death, says the Talmud, they get so shaken up and terrified that they open their mouth and the angel of death flings the drop of poison into their mouth, and from that, they die. And that causes their body to putrefy. And that causes their body to decompose and to turn greenish. That's what the Talmud says. Now, again, we have to remind everyone that when we are reading an Agadic Talmud, it's important to understand that this is multidimensional and what it actually means and what it represents. It's a very important question. But again, this is part of our subject What happens when you die? Now, how does a person process this? What does death feel like? So the Talmud tells us that it really depends. The degree of righteousness of a person determines how they process death and what it feels like to them. The Talmud tells us that there are 903 different kinds of death different kinds of experiences when a person dies. And the worst one of them is Askra. And Askra feels like trying to disentangle and pulling thorns from a tuft of wool. And the best kind of death is nashika, And that's like separating a hair from a glass of milk, gliding it seamlessly and smoothly away. Death is separation of body and soul. The degree of difficulty of separation of these two opposites is that, that that degree is determined by how enmeshed they are with each other and what the nature of the body is and what the nature of the soul is. And therefore, a person who lives a very righteous life and makes sure that their soul does not become contaminated and doesn't become corrupted and doesn't get sullied and dirtied by sin and matrix to keep the body at bay. The removal of those two is smooth, is painless, is seamless. It's simple. The wicked person who has allowed their soul to get mangled by sin, someone like that, their body and their soul are so helplessly entangled to separate the two is a nightmare. I want to point out that the mechanism for how the soul actually leaves the body is featured in a chapter of my upcoming book. But again, on a simple level, we have separation of body and soul. When we are alive, we're a fusion of body and soul. That's the human who's alive. And then death is the undoing of this bond and the separation of the the two into distinct parts. The body goes to where it came from. The soul Goes to where it came from. Now, on a more granular and nuanced level, we think of death as the body expiring and then the soul leaving. It's actually the opposite. The soul leaves, and the soul, which was the animating factor of the body, if that's removed, the body becomes, as they say, a paperweight. A useless hunk of flesh, not just useless, it's a liability, it starts to putrefy, it starts to decompose. The soul is what gives life, what the Almighty contributes, so to speak, into the concoction of man, mankind. The Almighty withdraws it and the body is now useless. So when we talk about death, it's important to stress, that the nature of death and how it's processed, it's not uniform. The nature of a person's death is a direct result of what kind of life that person led. What's the condition of the body? What's the condition of the soul? And how much are they interwoven and tangled in each other? That will determine how difficult and how painful death is. When a person sins, they are linking their body and their soul. And the more a person sins, the more the soul becomes sullied and entangled, and the more difficult it is to separate the two. When a righteous person dies, their soul has been preserved in its purity, and it is seamlessly separated from its body host in a painless fashion. So that's the description of death. What happens next? What happens after death? So again, we mentioned this earlier, but the verse tells us that the dust returns to dust and the spirit returns to God. The body goes to where it came from. The soul goes to where it came from. The soul, a person's consciousness, remains as it did earlier but it's actually more heightened. As the period of death gets further and further away, the soul and its focus and its consciousness gets further and further away from the body. The soul, right after death, actually has acute awareness of the body and what the body is undergoing. And as time progresses, the soul distances itself further and further away from the body. And there are all kinds of milestones. You know, you have from the death and until the funeral, from the funeral until the burial, and then the eulogy. The eulogy, in fact, the Talmud tells us may serve as an indication as whether the person is a good person or a righteous person or a wicked person. And there are various stages of the burial. And then there's the seven days, the Shiva period. And then there's the 30 days, the the Shloshim. And then there's the 12 months the soul and the body are gradually separating from each other and the soul is moving on to the more ethereal realms. Right after death, the soul, the dismembered soul, sees exactly what is happening to the body. It's still very closely associated with it. And the soul, in fact, is quite fascinated with the body. It's able to see it from the outside. Aristoteles tell us that the soul sees the friends and the family crying and mourning. Right after death, the soul's focus, the soul's attention is primarily on the body. Autopsies are a terrible idea because it's extremely painful for the soul. In fact, my father used to tell us war stories when he was a, a kid in Israel That they would take bodies, they would snatch bodies out of the coroner's offices to bury them quickly because it's against Torah law for this reason. It's against Torah law to do an autopsy. It's a very painful experience for the soul. Why would you do that? Similarly, cremation, it's the worst experience for the soul. I always advise people that if their family members want to have a cremation, It's a good idea to violate their request. Don't give them what they want. Have mercy on them and don't listen to them. Why would you want them to endure such a painful and torturous experience? The Talmud tells us that the soul hears exactly what everyone is saying about it. And there's a question in the Talmud, when does that end? Does it end when the body decomposes, does it end when the body is sealed in the coffin? When the body is sealed in the grave, it's not so clear. But the body is still hyper aware of what's happening around it. I'm sorry, but the soul is still hyper aware of what's happening around it and the body. The Talmud further tells us that the soul mourns for seven days. The soul itself is mourning. And then there's a period of 12 months where the soul goes back and forth from hovering near the body to ascending the upper spheres. For 12 months, the the soul is still kind of ping-ponging back and forth between its existence here, its association with the body, until it just eventually says, I'm in the spiritual realm, and it kind of fully severs or fully releases its association, or at least most of its association with the body. After a person dies, the soul undergoes all kinds, all manners of judgment. Our sages tell us that the soul experiences seven different kinds of judgment. Number one, right before death, Three angels come to inspect the soul. One angel calculates all the seconds that the person was alive to figure out what did they do with the golden opportunities that they were given. The second angel calculates all the transgressions that they did. The third angel is the same angel that accompanied the child in utero and taught it Torah. And the third angel says, it's there to inspect, how much of what I taught you have you retained? And that's the first level of judgment. The second level of judgment is after death, when the person is being led to the grave they're being judged. And the declaration that is said before the wicked is woe to this person who rebelled against the king. The third level of judgment is when the person is being placed in the grave below, they are being judged on high. The fourth level of judgment is what's called which literally means Well, let's not translate it literally, but it means the judgment and punishment in the grave where every limb and organ that, so to speak, divorced itself from God is going to be treated and punished and addressed and judged relative to its behavior. The fifth level of judgment is the worms and maggots. that are nibbling on a person's flesh the sixth level is what's called kafakela, the slingshot treatment and finally level 7 is dehenum now what happens in the grave the thing i didn't want to translate actually we we could translate we call it the beating of the grave there are some very scary descriptions And again, I warned you, this is going to be a little scary, (laughs) so pardon me. Forgive me. Our saint is the scribe, angels coming with chains and demanding from the person to tell the angels the person's name. And the wicked don't know their own name. The name, of course, represents a person's essence and mission. If a person does not know their name, that's an indication that they have not fulfilled their mission. And angels whip the person with those chains. How do you not know your name? You've lived for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. What do you do? How come you didn't live up to the expectations of you? This is why, by the way, at the end of the Amidah prayer, there is a tradition to say a verse that has your name hinted into it so you never forget it. In addition, the body can feel the worms and maggots nibbling on it. And the deep insight behind this is that to the degree that a person lived their life as a body, meaning that they prioritized their physical existence and ignored, neglected, and deprioritized their life as a soul, the more association they had with their identity, that I'm a body, the more they experience what the body experiences. If someone is living their life as a soul and the body is so incidental, they don't feel the experience of the body because that's not their identity. Your identity is how you choose to live. And the experience the body undergoes Well, that's something the body undergoes. If that's not your identity, it's not something you need to worry about. Now, this slingshot treatment that I mentioned is featured in the Talmud and elaborated upon in the Esoterica. That's the idea, again, the way it's described in the Talmud, that there are angels on either side of the world and they're taking souls and they're giving them the slingshot treatment, slinging them from one to the other. What that means, I don't know. But the Zohar tells us that this is the worst experience of them all. Now, the purpose of this, as I understand it, is to try to shake the soul free of its contaminants. And again, as I mentioned on the onset, the objective of everything that happens after a person dies is to try to prepare the soul for the afterlife, for all my But the soul has all these contaminants. There's all these thorns that are still stuck there. We're going to shake it very violently until those thorns are removed. And therefore, we've got to sling it back and forth until there is the ability to view the soul absent its contaminants. And the seventh level of judgment is the goal. That's where we want to end up because that's Gehenna and that is the Purgatory, where the purification process, where the fixing process can begin. Again, the objective is to try to restore the soul to its pre-corruption condition so that it can be worthy and meritorious to end up in the afterlife. Or perhaps for a different end, as we shall see. But again, the critical point in all these layers and levels of judgment is that the more someone lives as a body, the more that its identity is associated with the body, the more it, so to speak, the consciousness lingers and feels the pain of the body. A soulful person is someone that lives as a soul and that identity is not connected to the body And it does not experience what the body experiences. Now, this judgment that we talked about is much more connected to a sinner, to a wicked person. A righteous person experiences these times in a very different fashion. After a righteous person dies, we're told that they actually encounter the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And although they experience all these junctures of judgment, if they are righteous, it's a an easier and more pleasant experience. Now, the Talmud tells us that the Gehenna, that the purgatory, has three entrances. One in a desert, one in a sea and one in a city. After a person dies, they must encounter all three of these entrances. They are going to experience or encounter these three entrances, and they have to be inspected as to whether or not they need a cleansing of this, that, or the other variety of purgatory. The Talmud tells us that the Torah, Torah and mitzvos protect us from all three. They are the Kevlar that protects us against Gehenna. A righteous person will pass by Gehenna. A completely righteous person will pass by Gehenna and will go to a place called Gan Eden, Eden, Paradise. But even Eden and paradise, those exist on multiple levels and dimensions. You have seven different layers of paradise until you have the higher paradise. And it takes a minimum of 12 months to get from the lowest level of paradise until the highest level of paradise. The ultimate destiny of the soul in this dimension is to end up ensconced underneath the divine throne of glory. But to get there, it's got to go through all these hoops to arrive at that destination. We're told that in paradise, the righteous are invited to give a Torah discourse for 180 days. And all the sages and all the righteous people call us and say, let's hear what you have studied in the Amarist Torah, give it to us, what did you learn? Let us witness your accomplishments. So we have two parallel tracks here. And again, this is two general statements, two parallel tracks. It's really everyone is an individual, but in general, you have the the wicked, and they got to go through all these levels of purification and priming just to be able to end up in Gehenna which is the purification and the fixing, and then you have the righteous, they experience a much more pleasant preparation for paradise. After the wicked spend some time in Gehenem, it seems that the wicked can indeed end up in the same place. They can end up in paradise as well. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 17a, the wicked ones, the sinners, they descend into Gehenum for 12 months. After 12 months, their bodies are destroyed, their souls are burnt, and a wind comes and scatters them underneath the feet of the righteous. What this means, as I understand it, is that the purpose of Gehenna is ultimately to allow to facilitate that a person who is wicked, whose soul had alloys and contaminants and impurities, that person can eventually end up in paradise. Sometimes if they spend the full 12 months of cleansing and purification, to be able to end up underneath the feet of the righteous in paradise. Only if someone is completely free of any sin, do they not make a pit stop in Gehenna. So it's actually ironic that we do want to end up in hell, purgatory, Gehenna, because that means that we are in a process of, of trying to perfect and purify ourselves to eventually make it to Gan Eden, to paradise. This experience of Yohanim is matched out at a year, 365 days. Why is it matched out at a year? So perhaps the answer is, the Talmud tells us that there are 365 negative commandments, prohibitive commandments in the Torah, Perhaps this is speculation, but perhaps every single one of those sins, you need a day. There's one day in purgatory with that sin and that contaminant is addressed. And therefore, if someone is a complete sinner, they are flawed in all 365 dimensions. They'll need the full 12 months. So we have two ways, so to speak, to end up in paradise the righteous way, the wicked way, both of these people have to undergo all these various series of judgment and eventually they end up, whatever level permitting, in a certain degree of paradise. There is a third track. There is a third track and that is the track that we call reincarnation. If a person is flawed. They need to have those flaws ameliorated, addressed, remedied before they are qualified to end up in Gan Eden. But there's a difference between a person being flawed and a person not accomplishing their mission in life. You could accomplish a mission but still have some sort of flaws, some blemishes, some, some shortcomings. That person has to be cleansed and purified, remove those flaws and shortcomings, so that you can end up in the next stage in the paradise. If a person has completely not fulfilled their mission, they need to go back. They need to be returned to the world of action, to this world, so that they could finally finish and accomplish their task in life. So perhaps we can say broadly, after someone dies, they could end up in one of three general buckets. And of course, there are more buckets as well, but generally speaking. Bucket number one, is the straight ticket to paradise, super righteous, completely free of any sin, straight there. The forefathers will accompany you to your spot, and eventually you'll end up on the higher levels of paradise, ensconced underneath the throne of God. The next general bucket, well, that's purgatory. You have accomplished your mission. You have some flaws. Let's power wash you. Let's cleanse you. Let's remove those contaminants and alloys. Let's fix those minor problems. So that way you can end up in the place that you need to go. And finally, we have the third bucket. And that is where you need to be sent back because you have not yet done what you need to do. Now, again, this is a huge, huge subject. Really, all of them are. But the basic idea is you have to be sent back to complete what you did not fix. Now, of course, this, like really everything we're talking about today, this sounds like a very spooky and scary subject. But at its core, it's a very heartening concept. What is the reason why we have the concept of reincarnation? You are being given a second chance. You have to fulfill your mission. Your soul has to do something in order to arrive at its perfected state, in order to eventually end up in Almaba. And the Almighty in his benevolence and magnanimity and generosity and kindness and mercy is giving you a second chance. You're being given another opportunity. You failed. Try again. You have a mission that you did not do? Do it now. You have flaws that are too grand to be power-washed. Fix them. You've been given a second chance. Now it seems to me from the sources that reincarnation happens after a level of gehenna If you have a soul that is mangled and flawed, you can't just put that soul back into a body. The person has no chance. The person is doomed from the start. So you have to actually cleanse the soul, but this is not a cleansing that ends up in paradise. This is a cleansing that goes all the way back to step one, square one, the beginning of the story to another body or another earthly entity. To start from scratch, can you do it in your second chance or third chance or even perhaps fourth chance? If you don't accomplish it in your fourth chance, that's it. Four strikes and you're out. You have to at least accomplish a little bit of your mission to be given a fifth chance. If You do nothing. You are doomed. As a result of this idea, it is imperative for us to make a special effort to try to identify the things that we need to fix. Meaning, we don't have awareness of our previous lifetimes. We don't know where our soul was and what its history is and what the backstory is and what the flaw was that did not allow us to end up in paradise. But there are some tricks for us to try to identify those flaws. So for example, if you find some sort of sin, some sort of violation of the will of God that seems so irresistible and you can't overcome it, and you're like, why am I so successful in so many other areas? But in this area, I constantly stumble. That is the reason why you were sent back. The area that you experience the most challenge and difficulty to fulfill the will of God is precisely the location, the area of your character that you were sent back to fix. We're given a second chance and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and perhaps even a fifth chance, and so on. But even though someone's given a second chance, it seems likely that when you fix it, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth go-round, there is a bit of an erosion of the power of the soul, and your soul whatever this means, shrinks in its capacity in each successive round. Think about it. If the soul comes and it's all mangled, you got to fix it. You're shaving off little parts. It's a smaller soul, so to speak. Of course, these are terms. These are usages of terms that don't really fit to the spiritual paradigm. But the soul is going to be limited if it was, so to speak, infected round one. Round two, it's going to be a weaker soul. But there's another fundamental difference between someone who fits themselves perfectly, round one, versus someone that has to come back and be recycled and go through it a second time and eventually does fits themselves as well. Do you remember the Talmud we mentioned earlier? I know we mentioned a lot of Talmuds, but listen to this one. The Talmud says, that the wicked ones... They descend to Gehenim for 12 months. And after 12 months, their bodies are destroyed, their souls are burnt, and a wind comes and blows them underneath the feet of the righteous. That is the Talmud we mentioned a few minutes ago. It's found in the book of Rosh Hashanah on page 17a. You'll notice something very unusual in this Talmud. It's talking about what's happened to the soul in Gehenna. It's there for twelve months, but it also mentions that their bodies are destroyed. You spend twelve months in Gehenna, but it's not your body; that's your soul. Why is the result of twelve months in Gehenna? Why is that affecting your body? It seems really strange. So Hashem just tells something very deep. Even paradise, that is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is olam haba, a subject that we will, please God, discuss at length. Olam haba comes, at least apparently from the sources, but like I mentioned earlier, a lot of these subjects are subject to great dispute But Allah is the world that comes after the resurrection. Someone's resurrected, body and soul reunite. Isn't that strange? The soul's cleansed, the soul's in paradise, the soul's ensconced underneath the divine throne of glory. And then there's resurrection. Body and soul are reunited. Is the body intact? Is the body fully operational in Ulam Abba? The answer is, it depends. If someone was a complete tzaddik from day one, then yes. If someone had to go through many rounds of reincarnation and purification and Ganem, then their body is destroyed. It's 12 months in Ganem; the body is destroyed. Meaning their body, which comes back for reincarnation, I'm sorry, let me repeat that. Meaning that their body that comes back, for resurrection is not a complete body. Perhaps we can say. This is the age-old question about reincarnation. Suppose your catalog of bodies is 10 different bodies over the course of two millennia. Again, this is all spitballing. None of us really know this. We can't really identify the history and the, Transmigration of our soul and which body do we have in the pre- previous go around? Even though we may have some premonition. But suppose just again, for argument's sake, you've had ten different bodies, eventually you fixed it, you ended up in paradise, you come back. Resurrection. The bodies and souls are reunited again. Which body? is your soul associated with? Now, that may be an infantile question because like I mentioned, at the very onset, your body today is a very different body than your body yesterday. We view our body as a single entity even though it's constantly dynamic and changing every second. So maybe it's not even a good question, but let's assume it is a good question. Which body is it? Is it body one, body two, body seven, the last one, the first one? If the answer is the first one, then it makes sense that that's the only one that you could go back to. But if that one has been corrupted and you needed to be reincarnated, well, maybe your ability to have a fully functional and operational body after reincarnation is severely curbed. So what happens after you die? The answer is, it's kind of (laughs) complicated. Lots of things. But the general notion that we're trying to get to is that reward and punishment exists. It exists and it's part of the divine system. The ultimate objective of it is to best position a person to do what the Almighty wants of them to do. To accomplish their mission. To be worthy, to be a good candidate for paradise and eventually Omaha. But again, this is not a complete comprehensive treatment. Cause again, even paradise, even being ensconced under the, underneath the throne of glory, that is not the end game. I've heard it described as a glorified waiting room a pleasant one, but still, Olam that is the ultimate. Perhaps paradise is similar to a dimension of the souls before birth. Before birth, the souls are also extant, are also pure, are also experiencing God in a very visceral fashion, but they're not in Olam That's perhaps where the souls are stored until Olam there's still a lot more to cover here. If y'all are brave enough, we can actually try to study these subjects at greater length. The details, this is maybe a sketch. This is a sketch of what actually happens after you die. And there's so many different aspects that are intersecting here. What's it going kind of actually like? Maybe we can even get into the various stages of judgment that we talked about. From what I've seen, it's pretty scary. I don't know if we want to go there. Maybe we could uh give enough disclaimers ahead of time. I don't want to freak anyone out. What's paradise like? The details of reincarnation as best we know them. There is still so much to cover. You know, I feel like we started this principle softly. Reward and punishment in general. And how does godly punishment begin? How does that work? We're getting closer to the meat of this fascinating subject. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Again, a reminder, please visit givetorch.org. Every donation is tripled. We need your support. The website is givetorch.org. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.